All right, you can open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 is our, our passage tonight. And as you're getting all set, uh, let's just take a moment to pause and pray and ask for God to um, show us things in ourselves and in Him through His Word. Dear God in heaven, we thank you that we get to come here and open up your Word. So many people do not know what is happening. They do not know any truth about you. They do not know any truth about themselves. But you, through your word, you teach us. And you're kind and you're gentle in your words. And even in the severity of your treatment, when you are harsh, you are harsh for our good and for your glory. And I pray that you would use this passage to thunder that message home. You'd instill in us a a true love for you, a fear for you, a trust in you, and a fearfulness of sin and its destructive power in our life. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It was November, November 14th, 1965. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore's worst fears were about to be realized. Not only was his force, the 7th Cavalry Regiment, completely outnumbered in comparison to their enemy, they were also in a vulnerable position. They were completely surrounded and they were positioned to be wiped out with a few more strong pushes from the enemy. Now, for some background, they were in the highlands of Vietnam, They were riding into battle with a new kind of weaponry. Gone were the days of the war horse that uh, Custer took into battle almost a hundred years prior with the same regiment, the 7th Regiment. Uh, Horses and and trucks uh, were necessary to supply the battlefield and to supply soldiers, but they had major hiccups, that is, they moved slowly and they They caused you to have this big, long supply line that was vulnerable. And Colonel Moore's regiment, though, they rode into battle on a new kind of weapon, a new kind of horse. It was the helicopter. (laughs) The helicopter was ideal for the jungle fighting environment in Vietnam, and the, the powers that be thought it was the greatest way to break the gridlock of the war. But Colonel Moore was in similar straits to his uh, historical counterpart, Custer. He was surrounded by an enemy and about to be overrun. And the doom of their regimental name was about to repeat itself again on the 7th Cavalry Regiment. Their orders were simple. They were to fly into enemy territory where they thought there was a detachment of enemy troops, find the enemy and destroy them. Well, they they flew in, they landed in the LZ, the landing zone, and for the first few hours, everything seemed calm. Too calm, in fact. As a matter of fact, it was almost like a training exercise calm. But Colonel Moore was no newbie to the warfare environment. He had trained his soldiers how to think about calm. Matter of fact, one of his favorite quotes was, nothing is wrong except nothing is wrong. And the idea behind that quote is, 
Just when you think everything's going well is when you must assume that there is some sort of danger lurking. Nothing is wrong, and that's what's wrong, that there's nothing wrong. When we're in enemy territory, we assume that things are going to be going wrong. We plan for it. We prepare for it. We train for it. That's what he pounded into their heads. And sure enough, his instincts were right. They actually captured a deserting soldier who told them that in the mountains surrounding their unit, there were three battalions of soldiers who very much wanted to kill American troops but had yet to find any yet. And what followed was three days and two nights of vicious warfare. They almost got wiped out at one point, but by the end it was Hal Moore's alertness, attentiveness, his training that he insisted his men go through, and also another thing called the United States air superiority that won the day and enabled them to escape even though they were surrounded. The U.S. suffered 243 casualties that day. The North Vietnamese Army, the NVA as they're referred to, lost what was what they reported as is 834 troops, although probably they probably downplayed their losses. It could have been even closer to 1,800 troops. But it was almost a devastating day because nothing seemed wrong. Well, I would say to you that Israel, in our passage tonight, was in a very similar position. They were in enemy territory, but they were walking blind. They had an enemy that they didn't know about. They didn't see. Nothing was wrong, actually, it seemed. Except for the fact that nothing seemed wrong. Now, you got to be careful here. Because as we've been reading through Joshua, we should expect that Israel would have a lot of confidence in battle, right? What have they done so far? They have walked through the Jordan River on dry ground and the waters have stood up like a wall. And they have walked around the city, the fortress of Jericho, and the walls have melted like water. The inhabitants of the land, as we have read again and again, have hearts that are melting with water. The Israelites have cause for confidence. As a matter of fact, their own, their own God has told them himself not to be afraid, but to be strong and what? Courageous, Courageous right? So they should be confident. But Israel had a problem and they didn't even know about it. Look at what it says in verse 1, right after the walls of Jericho. But the sons of Israel lacked, uh, acted unfaithfully in regard to the things devoted to destruction. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Therefore the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. Israel was in trouble. Israel's God was angry at them. They were in sin. And notice this, they were in sin because one man. The whole nation was being treated for the sins of one man. It's shocking to us because notice what Israel did that was sinning. 
Notice what caused the Lord's anger. They had sinned in regards to the devoted things. Remember the devoted things. We, we read about this last week in verse 18 of chapter 6, right? God, before they're about to yell and see the walls crumble, warns them, pauses them right at the gates of Disney saying, wait, before you go in, let me tell you, there's a way that you are going to ruin this promised land. And that is if you disregard my commands and if you touch these devoted things. This is the first city of our conquest. You must destroy it all and dedicate it all to me as kind of a first fruit offering. Do not touch. Trust in the Lord. You can have all of the spoil of the land after this city, but first you you must give this city to me. That's what the Lord said in chapter 18 or verse 18 of chapter 6. Keep yourselves from the things devoted for destruction, lest as you are devoting them to destruction, you also take some of the things devoted to destruction and make the camp of Israel devoted to destruction and bring trouble on it. Notice now 7 verse 1, trouble has come on all of Israel, just as the Lord had predicted. But notice this, Israel wasn't in trouble because of some unclear, indirect, ceremonial, like, side command. They were in trouble because of willful disobedience on the part of one man. Willful, direct, intentional rebellion. He knew what God said, but he did otherwise. And the first thing I do want to point out uh, when we examine this chapter, this chapter that talks about the, the troubling side of secret individual sin, is I want to point out sin's sobering presence. That's what you see in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, isn't it? So you see, number one, sin's sobering presence. And just get the drama of this, right? Israel is at a high point. They are invading the land Everything's going well. The conquest, God's promises are coming true. But Israel's trouble comes right there. And notice, right in the very heart of them, right in the middle. The tribe of Judah, of all tribes, is the tribe that is in sin. Judah, the favored or jewel tribe, they're the ones that bring trouble on Israel. This is sin's sobering presence. And this brings to mind a thought for you. Who is your greatest enemy? What is your greatest enemy? What is the greatest trouble in your life this spring? This winter? This this year? What, what is the biggest trouble that you face? It's not someone in the government that's over you. It's not someone in a classroom somewhere. It's not a neighbor. It's not It's not someone in your house. It's not your parents, it's not your siblings, it's not teachers, it's not found in the movies, it's not found in social media or in a phone. That is not your biggest problem, that is not your greatest enemy. No, your greatest enemy is inside you, in the middle of you. It is a will that is disregarding God's word and God's ways and God's warning. That is the greatest enemy. We should be sobered by sin's presence. Sin is dangerous when it is allowed in our heart and in our will. And notice something also about sin's presence, and this should also trouble you. I mean, this is under that idea of sin's sobering presence. 
Notice sin is, is at the heart of Israel, but notice God is not surprised by it at all. Matter of fact, the narrator intentionally lets us in on what is happening spiritually in this narrative to give us a divine perspective. God is not surprised by sin in our heart at all. He sees it from the beginning to the end. And we get to see this story from God's perspective. And it's a sobering perspective. That's, that's sin's sobering presence. What happens as, as a consequence of God being against his people? What happens? Let's just keep reading. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to strike down I. Do not have all the people toil up. Therefore they are few. Now we were having a dispute in our leaders meeting earlier. Do you pronounce it A-I or do you pronounce it I? And for show of hands, who pronounces it A-I? Well, guess what? I pronounce it I now. Because I just figured I'd just be contrary. But uh, you could pronounce it either way, I suppose. But I is how I seem to read it. This is, of course, a fortress inside of the land of Canaan. It's a strategic place. If Jericho was kind of protecting Israel's beachhead, they just get across the Jordan and they need to take out Jericho to kind of secure their beachhead. Um, AI or I, as you could call it. uh, would be kind of securing or giving them a gateway into the highlands, which are really the entrance into the promised land. So in order to get into the promised land, they have to go through this city, this fortress. And and notice what uh, Joshua's scouts say. They say, do not have all the people go up. And maybe we shouldn't jump to a conclusion of overconfidence here. There are so many things you could preach on here, but we are not really told what the problem is. Remember, once again, Israel had pretty significant success recently. They, they have reasons to have confidence, and maybe there's other reasons as well. But notice, the soldiers are like, do not wear out all of the troops up there. We can take this city. This city is small. This city is easy. And then look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled. They fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and they became as water. Now notice the the, the men of Ai, the men of the city of the Ai are able to chase Israel all the way to this place called Shebarim. That would probably be about two, two and a half, three miles from, from Ai. The city of Ai would be way back down near the Jordan River. So they are, they are chased all the way back to where they have begun, essentially. And, and notice this, this is a significant route as well, because 36 men are killed. And you might be saying to yourself, 36 men, that's nothing. Matter of fact, if, if 3,000 men went up, if 3,000 men went up, that's only about 1.2% of the attacking force. And, and Israel had about 400,000 army soldiers anyway. That's only 0.006% of their entire army. 36 is nothing. 
But notice, notice their response to only 36 men dying. What do they do? Then Joshua, verse 6, tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? only to give us into the hand of the Amorites to make us perish. If only we had been willing to live beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? The Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? 36 may not sound like much, but think about it this way. 36 men was 36 more than had died at Jericho. Israel had experienced unprecedented dominance in all of their battles. They lost no one. This was shocking. That just shows you how how powerful they were at this time, what they were used to. If 36 men causes them to melt with fear. And notice another thing, what happens to Israel? They become just like the Canaanites too, don't they? Remember Rahab's testimony? Remember the testimony we saw about the kings of the land when they heard about Israel crossing the Jordan in chapter 5, verse 1? All their hearts melted. Rahab said, all of our hearts have melted. But notice here, Israel is like Canaanite. Their hearts have melted. They are defeated. They are doomed because of this battle. In light of sin's sobering presence, you could say we we are looking at sin's sobering consequences, aren't we? We're looking at sin's sobering consequences. And and notice here, what are the consequences of sin? What is the consequence of God being angry at his people um, and their sin in their heart? Well, first off, notice it's, it's confidence, but also it's dread and fear. All of these things, you could say, are consequences of sin, right? Sin has all sorts of impacts on you, and we can't just say it's overconfidence. It's also dread and fear. When sin is in your life, when sin is in your heart, you are fearful. You are anxious. You will struggle with both overconfidence, and you will struggle with confusion. There are many consequences of sin in your life and in your heart. It gets messy. That sin's sobering consequence. And notice Joshua's prayer there in verse 6. This is a national tragedy. And notice what, what Joshua prays like. He, he prays with a certain sense of fear, right? They are going to destroy us. He prays with a certain amount of doubt, doesn't he? Aren't you faithful anymore, God? Why did you bring us over here at all? But notice this, he... He also prays without sin. What is the heart behind Joshua's words? What is going to happen to your name? Your name is tied up in the good of your people. What will become of your name? 
What's the difference between these words prayed by Joshua and their parallel words, you know, shouted by the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness rejecting the promised land? Remember that when they were at Kadesh Barnea saying, we don't want this land. We don't want it at all. They're too big for us. They're going to be destroyed. What's what's the difference between a sinful uh, word like Israel had back then and Joshua's prayer here? Well, it's just direction. Notice, the difference between sin and praying is sin is complaining about God and prayer is complaining to God. God wants you actually to be incredibly honest about your situation. Matter of fact, maybe that is why God has allowed this moment to happen in the life of his people because he wants them to start asking questions about what is going on. He has orchestrated trouble for his people so that they become spiritually alert. And notice what God says in verse 10. So Yahweh said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also trespassed against my covenant, which I commanded them. They have even taken some of the things devoted to destruction and have both stolen and dealt falsely. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot rise before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things devoted to destruction from your midst. Notice we've, we've looked at sin-sobering presence. Notice also it's important to see sin-sobering consequences. But here's another sobering truth about sin. Notice sin's sobering solution. Sin's sobering solution. Verse 12 really actually is the center of this narrative. Everything is leading up to this and everything moves away from this. What is the, the, the sobering situation facing Israel that requires such a severe solution? It is that God will not be with his people anymore if sin is in their camp, if they are devoted to destruction. This is a troubling truth. And what is the solution? God goes on to tell them, verse 13, rise up. Set the people apart as holy and say, set yourselves apart as holy for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, for, for thus Yahweh, the God of Israel has said, there are things devoted to destruction in your midst, O Israel. You cannot rise before your enemies until you have removed things devoted to destruction from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes, and it will be that the tribe which Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which Yahweh takes shall come near by households, and the household which Yahweh takes shall come near man by man. And it will be that the one who is taken with the things devoted to destruction shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him, because he has trespassed against the covenant of Yahweh. And because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Notice, sin's sobering solution. You need to stop where you are. This isn't a time of mourning. This is a time of action. You need to stop all other activities that you're doing, all conquest plans, and you need to deal with the sin that is in your camp. 
the word verse, in verse 14 for taken, taken by lot, is a unique word, not often referring to casting lots or taking lots. It's actually a word that usually means capture. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, I am going to capture the one who is guilty. I'm going to hunt him out, find him. And notice also, Yahweh is the continual subject of this taking as well. He is in control. He is, he is searching out. He will find. But God's people must also pursue God's solution as well. And this is a lesson for us, right? You need to be serious about sin if you want God's solution to your sin. It's a sobering solution, and you must pursue it. And if you don't pursue it, you will become like people that don't know God if you're not serious about sin. That sin's sobering solution. Look, look another one here as we move through this story. Notice sin's sobering discovery as well. Sin's sobering discovery. Verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites And he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. Notice just the agonizing slowness of this. Verse 18. And he brought his household near, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Once again, it is the way the narrator just moves through this. It's almost aghast and surprised. Judah of all tribes. How could it be Judah? Verse 19 continues. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I I implore you, give glory to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and declare to me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all of the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before Yahweh. Perhaps it would be helpful to you to understand exactly what the temptation was here. What did, what did Achan see in Jericho that was so compelling? He saw a mantle from Shinar. He saw 200 shekels of silver, and he saw a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Just put it this way. This would have set Achan up to be a wealthy man for the rest of his life. It was 
concealable, hideable, but also very valuable. And so you get the temptation a little bit here. This could set me up for the rest of my life. I could be comfortable. And we see a few lessons about sin and temptation even in this, right? Sin is tempting. If you haven't discovered this yet, here it is. Sin is tempting. I could be set up for life. I'll never have to work again. But I would also say, it's kind of humorous, sin and temptation is also very irrational, isn't it? I mean, what is Achan going to say when he tries to use all of this money that he has stolen? I mean, is he going to walk around downtown with his mantle from Shinar and have his friends say, Hey, Achan, where did you get that mantle from Shinar? I found it. He almost has to keep it hidden to keep it safe. But sin also, you see here, is internal as well. Notice in Achan's confession, I saw, I coveted, I took. Notice Achan speaks with strikingly biblical language. And that shows you how sin works because the Bible explains you to you like nothing else. Achan speaks right out of the book of the law that the Lord God told to the people. He uses the same language. In, in Deuteronomy 5.21, um, God says, part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, uh, nor shall you desire your neighbor's house, or his field, or his maidservant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that he has. Coveting is a sin. It's one of the big ten as well. And notice, Achan is very similar in his sin to two other sinners. Matter of fact, the two original sinners. Where have you heard the words, I saw, I coveted, and I took? Eve, Eve right? I saw the fruit. Genesis 3, 6. I saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took and so she ate. Notice, sin is the same. Sin's temptation is the same. You covet. That's a word that just describes desire. It could be desire for something good, like a wife or a house. Or it could be a desire for something bad, like something that God has placed off limits. But first you see it and you desire it in your heart and then you take it. That is how sin works. Or you could say it like this. Think about this. The real sin of Jericho was not something that Achan took out of Jericho, but it's something that Achan brought into Jericho. What was that? It was a dissatisfied, distrusting heart of his own God, right? God, God is holding something good back from me. God is not giving me something that I need to be happy, to have joy. God is saying, don't touch. And I am unhappy about it. And in that heart, he saw and he coveted and he took. Sin sprouts from a heart of suspicion towards God. A heart of distrust towards God, doesn't it? Sin grows well in that type of soil. 
But on the flip side, sin is vanquished in a heart of thankfulness and trust, isn't it? But next we see another thing about sin's sobering reality. We see sin's sobering judgment. Sin sobering judgment. Verse 24, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Just one side thought. Achan was not a poor man. He had a lot of stuff. Covetousness is not a poor man's game. Greed is not a wealthy man's problem. He had plenty. Verse 25, Then Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And then, of course, after sin's sobering judgment, we see sin's sobering remembrance in verse 26. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, which is a play on the name Achan to this day. I have a question for you. After reading that, after hearing that, does that story trouble you? It should. It should, shouldn't it? Matter of fact, I would say to you that it's meant to trouble you. It's meant to sober you. It's meant to cause fear. And I would even suggest that there are three ways in which this story is supposed to trouble you even tonight, even in your seats. First off, you should be troubled by the origin of sin. You should be troubled where sin begins. You should be troubled about it. The main point of this passage is really easy, isn't it? Sin is dangerous. Sin is like a cancer. Sin is like a weed. It takes control and it ruins what it touches. And it's the most dangerous of all kind of enemies. It is an internal enemy. It is an internal treason. That's what sin is. It's more dangerous than an outside enemy. Why? Because something that comes from within you, a desire from within, you're more likely to trust. You're more likely to believe. And this is how the Bible always describes sin. Sin comes from within. James 4, 1 through 3 says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? Or, maybe a, an interesting way you've heard Proverbs 4.23, maybe a new way to think about Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart with all diligence, uh, for from it flow the springs of life. It almost seems to suggest you should guard your heart, not because of all the things coming in, but because of all the things coming out. Or how about James 1? 
Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Sin is dangerous because of where it comes from. It is a silent cancer. It is a sneaky, greedy weed that grows. And it grows in the desires. And it grows with a desire that is distrusting, unbelieving, resentful, angry, irritated. That's where sin comes from. And that should trouble us. But by the way, there's there's an opposite application to this, isn't there? You will do what you desire, won't you? You will pursue what you want. And this tells you what true change looks like, doesn't it? True change happens when you desire new things. When you are transformed in your mind and in your desires... True change happens, and you can live a transformed life, not because of some strength in you, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you, that enables you to want the things that God wants. True change is possible, even in the deepest part of you. But i got a question for you tonight. What is your attitude towards God? What is your attitude? Are you thankful for him? Are you worshiping him? Are you trusting him? Or are you distant? Are you doubting? Are you fearful? What is your attitude towards God tonight? That will shape your heart towards him. But you should also be troubled, not just by the origin of sin, but you should be troubled in this story by the consequences of sin as well. Not only is sin dangerous, but it also has devastating uh, consequences on you, on your life, and on those around you. And that's what this story kind of tees up and illustrates. This is a physical example of what spiritually happens all the time in sin. Sin is like a weed. It never stays in one place. It spreads to whatever is closest. It will spread to the people around you. Sin is invasive and pervasive. And here's the troubling thing about secret individual sin. Secret individual sin, write this down, never has secret or individual consequences. Secret individual sin never will have secret or individual consequences. Regardless of how much you want it to stay hidden, regardless of how you don't want the impacts of sin to spread to those around you, secret individual sin will have impacts. Why did the whole family need to be judged? Is this normally the way God operates? Well, actually, no. Deuteronomy 24.16 would say that a child cannot be killed for the sins of his father. So what's going on here? Here, God is setting his people down like young children to talk to them clearly about the dangers of sin. They are young. They are just entering the promised land. Do you want to ruin this? I'm going to stop you here before you go any further and show you the severity of your sin. 
This may seem harsh, God is saying, but your sin will be harsher with you. And I'm going to show you grace by stopping you in your sin and dealing severely with your sin before your sin can deal severely with you. Sin would be dangerous to the entire nation at this part, this point, and it would ruin it. And there is an application to you as well in being troubled by the consequences of sin. We need to be more troubled by sin in our life, don't we? We need to be more troubled. And a lesson like this is so vital to us. Not so that we can ask questions about the justice of God, but so that we can see this is what sin does, and this is the sobering consequences of sin in my life. And I need to fight against sin all the more in my own heart and in my life because this is how sin operates. I need to fear sin and its consequences, and I need to not be complacent about it, ever. And a, and a lesson like this is, is helpful, profitable for us, just like it would be for Israel, right? It wakes us up. We are in enemy land, and we cannot afford to dibble and dabble with sin. It will blind us. It will put a veil over our eyes and block us from seeing God and trusting Him. We must deal strongly, seriously, soberly with sin. But there's one more way I think this passage is meant to trouble you. And it has to do with that sense of one man and his impact. And I would say you should be most troubled by the consequences of atonement because of this passage. But I mean troubled in a different way. I mean troubled in an astonished way, humbled way, worshiping way. This should cause you to tremble with joy. Notice this. If, if you are troubled by the death of an innocent man, you should be most troubled by the death of Jesus Christ himself. And and. If you don't really like this idea of a whole entire group of people being treated for one man's actions, you're not going to get the gospel. This teaches you the gospel. This is the gospel. A whole group of people is treated as one man is treated. Matter of fact, Romans 5.17 says this, If by the trespass of one, death reigned through one man, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We should be troubled in an astonished and humbled and worshipped way. God, you are a God who doesn't treat me as I deserve to be treated, but you treat me on the basis of someone else. Christ's death teaches you the serious nature of your sin, doesn't it? More than anything else, more than any other word that the Bible says, when you think on Christ on the cross, you know the severity of your sin against God. I should be there. That is what Christ's death teaches you. And Christ's resurrection teaches you the serious nature of your justification as well. I have been satisfied. I have been made completely right with God. Now all is well in my life because Christ died. It was his blood and not mine. Yours was the sin. 
Yours was the trespass. Yours was the coveting. Yours was the taking. Yours was the crime. And his was the pain. His was the death. His was the sorrow. His was the separation. His was the anguish. And his was the wrath. And his was the judgment. And as a result, yours is the righteousness. And yours is the satisfaction. And yours is the life. And yours is the resurrection. And yours is the hope. Because God has treated you as that one man, Jesus Christ. But that only comes through putting your faith in Jesus. Through turning to Jesus. To seeing the judge and all of your guilt that will be paid by you. And running to your judge to become your present Savior. Did you notice there is a parallel here between Achan and Rahab? What did Rahab do? Rahab had nothing to offer spiritually to God. She saw her future judge and she ran to him to become her present Savior. Achan had everything going for him. And he chose to distrust his God and run towards sin. And she is the true picture of an Israelite. And Achan becomes the picture of a Canaanite under judgment. You need to run to Christ because of the impact, because of the consequence of the atonement. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message that is that's sobering in so many ways and troubling beyond measure. But may we be troubled most by what you have done for us so freely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we run to him and find your infinite mercy and your grace and your life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.